Corporate Unplugged opens the door to a world of people transforming business. They share their dreams, their experiences, and what they would never give up. I'm so glad to have Raya Bichakri here with me from Dubai. Welcome to my podcast, Raya. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. And I'm so happy to meet you. And especially here now, we're in Italy in beautiful uh, Salerno, where we are both uh, speakers at a conference for social enterprises. I listened to your talk yesterday and I was really happy to see that um, grace, that calm, that like self-awareness that you have, especially given your young age. I, I really, I really appreciate that. As a short intro, Raya Bichakri is a serial entrepreneur, writer, educator, futurist and keynote speaker. She's been described as a techno-optimist, as a communicator of popular science and an advocate of curiosity, critical thinking, wonder and awe. Uh, Raya is the founder and CEO of Org Academy, a future-focused educational organization that is disrupting traditional high school curricula and inspiring students to bring about civilization-level change. So, Raya, let's kick off with with Org Academy. You know, wh- what is it for, and and who is it for? Yeah, so Org Academy was designed in order to address a core set of problems that we're seeing right now with education. As many people already know, we're living through a world of accelerating change due to exponential technologies. 65% of the jobs, you know, according to some estimates, over half of the jobs that young people will be doing in the future do not exist yet. The workforce is evolving. It's because of the impact of automation, the contingent workforce, and it's showing demand for more critical thinkers, creative problem solvers, and multidisciplinary visionaries. And amongst this context, the traditional education models, systems, and curriculum have been outdated. Traditional education was designed in the industrial era to create factory-style workers that did the same thing again and again. It wasn't designed to prepare young minds for a world of accelerating change. How is it outdated? It focuses on all the isolated subjects, content knowledge, teaching in, in standardized curriculum, testing through standardized ways, and that's just not enough for what's ahead of us. So our academy is essentially a future-focused educational organization. We're disrupting traditional high school curriculum through our online platform for learners, for educators, and through workshops and boot camps. And what we're doing is teaching young minds all the soft skills, values, and competencies that are not covered in traditional education. So examples of topics include things like ethical use of technologies, mindsets like moonshot thinking, innovation, entrepreneurship, creativity, all the way to mindfulness, life, love, and death, the development of wisdom. And it's informed by thinking about what do we need to teach young minds, not just to prepare them for the workforce, but to empower them to live meaningful lives, to have a positive impact on humanity, because that's what the purpose of education should be. And how did you organize uh, Org Academy? I mean, who, how do you fund it? How do you organize it? The story behind it, I mean, like many other social or mission-driven entrepreneurs, it started for me with being a victim of the problem. 
So I was a young entrepreneur. I was part of the founding team of SciFest Dubai, which was the first science festival in Dubai. And we were, uh, this was back when I was in high school. And that grew beautifully. We celebrate the sciences through the arts. We had 10,000 visitors our first year. So it was amazing. And I then went off to the U.S. to study neuroscience, do research, and also continue to work on uh, entrepreneurial projects. But the more time I spent studying in formal education and the more time I spent actually having an impact on the world, the more I saw a mismatch between what I needed to know to be prepared and to be proactive and inspired versus what traditional formal education focuses on. And that was very frustrating for me because I love learning and I hated school. I hated sitting in the classroom and just passively memorizing and learning how to take tests because that's what a lot of learning actually is. And so that was a very frustrating experience for me. And at the same time, my co-founder, Rowan Roberts, who is an incredible award-winning educator, uh, he's a Global Teachers Prize finalist and manages innovation for 40 plus schools as an innovation leader at GEMS. He was seeing the same problems from a teacher's perspective. So we were seeing this, these issues and together we decided, okay, let's do something about it. Let's channel our frustration into initiative and proactiveness. In terms of how we operate exactly, we are like a supplement right now to traditional education. We operate as kind of like an extracurricular provider. However, we are working on actually becoming an alternative altogether. So working on an alternative model of education that will be a complete paradigm shift compared to what we're doing today. How would you define if you have like a big, big dream out there? What is it? I think for us, education is just one tool. You know, there's a beautiful quote by the Imaginary Foundation that says, imagine a future and then pull the present towards it. And uh, Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid al-Maktoum, who's the leader of Dubai, says something similar. He says the future belongs to those who can imagine it, design it and execute it. It's not something you await, but rather create. So when we think of the really big picture cosmic perspective vision for our academy, it comes from a place of thinking, what kind of a future do we want for humanity? What kind of a world do we want to live in? And boiling that down to the kinds of mindsets and skills that we need to embed into everyone on earth in order to create that future. So for instance, you know, one of the things we like to point out that almost all global challenges, man-made ones especially, boil down to human limitations. They boil down to things like egocentric concerns, unethical behavior, lack of expanded sense of self, tribalism, nationalism. And with the right kind of education, you could actually change these little things. You can make people have a more expanded sense of self, make people have or teach them the correct values that are positive and impactful, competencies that allow them to implement innovative solutions. And you're basically reducing a global vision for our species down to specific components, uh, mental modes that we can start by equipping in our youth. Are there any organizations or companies for that matter that you would love to cooperate with in order to advance this fast? Because education is so broad, there are so many different like subsectors within it that you could take this forward, right? So for instance, we're always very keen to work with the large established education providers that are looking to innovate. 
but can't necessarily do it in-house. We're seeing this across all industries. The massive corporations are becoming so bureaucratic that they struggle to do something really radical and innovative. So it's much more efficient and effective for them to work with smaller teams that operate outside of that ecosystem, but can do that innovation much faster than they could because of their own bureaucracies. So, you know, any large scale providers of education, the private sector Mm -hmm. that are struggling to do this in-house, but would like to cooperate um, with that external team that is aligned in terms of vision, we're always willing to work with. Also any ministries of education that want to be at the frontier of this, because again, the public sector is even more behind than the private sector. Once again, we're always very open to collaborating with the public sector too. What about the case of Finland that has been discussed so much? So I think Finland does a lot right. You know, we like to look at boiling down to what exactly is it that they're doing that makes it such a revolutionary education model. So I like to contrast the education model in Finland with the United States. So in the public sector in the U.S. is very test driven. It's constant tests and standardized tests at a local national level. So they have the state induced ones and they have the national induced ones. And there's this obsession around uh, standardized tests and exams, which then in return dictates what teachers teach, because they start teaching not in a way that will optimize learning, but in a way that will optimize results. So Finland's done the complete opposite. There's actually no compulsory testing. There's one test that students can take if they want to at the end of their high school experience. But other than that, what it does, it opens up teachers and individual schools to take autonomy into what they think is the best curriculum and what they think is the best methodologies. And by nature of doing that, you can have more personalized curriculum. You can have that you can have more innovation happen because the rigid structures are taken away. So I think, you know, Finland's doing a lot correct. They're doing a lot of other things such as implementing play-based education, reducing stress by reducing the amount of homework students take home so they learning is actually an enjoyable experience for them and also ensuring that everyone has access to high-quality free education. And above all, they empower the role of the educator. So a teaching profession in Finland is actually one of the most prestigious roles up there with being a doctor or a lawyer. So by nature, they attract the best talent, the most high educated talent, and it becomes a valued role in society as it should be. Fantastic. And, uh, And I get to experience this close for the last, you know, especially a couple of years through my son. And I see exactly this, you know, this sickness of tests that are just yeah. geared to, I mean, it's a whole business concept around it as well. They have to pay quite a bit of money in order to test drive and check and so on. It's it's very much about technique and understanding the, the reasoning behind. And it's really, really an industrialized kind of model. Exactly. Like, why do the SATs exist? Not because they actually measure intelligence. We have decades of data to show that there's no correlation between SATs and, and intelligence or even life success and being able to innovate and so forth. But it's a massive industry. Think of all the test prep classes, all the books, all the universities that get ranked with the SATs. It's so embedded from an industrial perspective. And I mean, by nature, the test has been actually designed to fail you. The average of the test is always 50%. So it's designed to fail you so that you pay for more classes and you pay to take it again. 
And when you really think about it in this way, it's you realize how outrageous and unethical it is. And it's mind-blowing and insane that we all buy into this system and very few institutions and individuals actually challenge this and say, no, we will not make the SATs a compulsory thing for our university exams. We won't even buy into that at all. In fact, we dismiss it. And we rarely see this. And that's what's mind-blowing to me with uh, about the education sector at large. Everyone just kind of accepts it for what it is without challenging the status quo. What, what could they do? Because the, the so-called best-ranked schools, whatever that means now, but still, they are the ones like you know pushing this. And if you want to go into a very good education or very good school, this is like the price or the conditions you have to stick with. And so what should, for example, my son is right mm-hmm. now into this SAT thing, right? Yeah. And he hates it, but, you know, what can he do? Yeah. So what should he do? Like, just don't bother about getting into that great school and just yeah. go to somewhere? You ask a great question, and it's a, it's a valid question because, I, I, you know, I actually wouldn't advise a lot of people to do that. You know, it depends on, it varies from case to case, but I think in the long term, what we need is these large-scale institutions and individuals that have that influence to start removing those systems, to start dismissing the SATs. Start, the change doesn't start necessarily with your son. It starts with those large-scale institutions, right? But one of the things we're actually trying to raise awareness of at Aw Academy, and in fact, we're releasing a guide on this soon, so follow us on social media, keep an eye out for it. But we're re- releasing a guide for parents called Alternative Pathways in Education because we get that question answered a lot. So for instance, we look at how a parent and a, you know, a student can work together to actually pave a different pathway outside of the traditional status quo. So for instance, how can you counteract the fact that you don't have, let's say, a traditional report card or SATs? Guess what? There is a world of nano degrees and micro degrees and project-based experiences and experiences you can use to develop your skills, resume, and network that can counteract you not buying into the traditional system. At the same time, the guide outlines all the different alternative universities, of which there are many. There's a wide range of incredible innovative universities that are emerging that are completely dismissing the old system. Alternative high schools, online high schools, opportunities for project-based learning, all the different things you can do from a pedagogical and experiential perspective that is actually going to create that future-focused innovative learning pathway for you. Because right now we just accept whatever learning pathway that society and universe system gives us. We say we need to do high school, do a few tests, go to university and then get a job. What if you threw that away? How can you design one for yourself that is actually customized and personalized for you and aligned with all the future skills and experiences and portfolio and resume that you need to have? And even if I finish university in like say five years with master degrees and all that and I picked certain like focus or direction, in these five years, so many things are happening. I mean, what is to say that that is the most relevant education, even in five years? Exactly. It's the reason that you're seeing large, innovative, you know, amazing, innovative companies like Google, Tesla, completely ditch the degree requirements, right? They're saying, we don't care if you've been to university. Apply to us. We'll take your application seriously. I mean, it's just a start. We need large-scale change. But a lot of the barriers to progress in the sector is really how people think about it. It's not like we don't have the technology or the systems or the knowledge to deploy in an alternative education framework that's radical. It's that the way people think about it is they're still clinging on to their old beliefs, 
right? So for instance, in high schools, a lot of high schools, when they try to innovate, when they try to do things differently, parents get in the way because parents know education is something, okay, it's about report cards and grades and tests and subjects. And anything outside of that is not education to them. And it's a failure of imagination. It's a failure of thought rather than a failure of anything else. Mm -hmm. So similarly, what we need is to change how people think and revolutionize how we see and how we evaluate, how we me measure success in education. Mm -hmm. And only then will the innovators actually succeed in getting adoption and being get, uh, taken seriously compared to the traditional institutions. Mm -hmm. And, and so how can exponential technologies be used to tackle this um, the global and existential challenges uh, facing our world? Exponential technologies, the reason we call them exponential is because of the rapid pace in which they're accelerating growth. Now, an analogy I like to use is this. Imagine you were to take 30 linear steps forward with each step being one meter in length. So that's one, two, three, four, five, so on. By step 30, you would be... 30 meters from where you started. That's the simplicity of linear growth. That's how we've been thinking for thousands of years. It's very easy to predict where linear growth will take you. But imagine you were doubling the length of your step each time exponentially. So one, two, four, eight, 16, 32, and so on. By step 30, you would be a billion meters from where you started. Now, that's the equivalent of 26 times around the planet. Now, that's what we mean when we say exponential technologies. It boils down to what we call Moore's Law, which shows us that our computing power is doubling every 12 to 14 months. It's the reason computers today are 100 million times more powerful than they were 50 years ago. And it's also the reason that in the next 100 years, we will see 20,000 years worth of human progress in our lifetime. Some people get afraid when they hear this. But for me, it's a case for optimism because... What it means is that the tools that we can use to make the world a better place are exponentially growing in power. That means we can use them to increase, reduce the cost of goods, to increase access to clean energy, to increase access to information. And that's what more and more companies and entrepreneurs are starting to do. They're starting to ask themselves, how can I leverage the power of exponential technologies to solve a local or global challenge and contribute to positive civilization level change? So really, it, obviously, the question of exactly how you can implement it varies from startup to startup or case to case. But one starting point would be to actually look at all the different exponential technologies like artificial intelligence, 3D printing, computing, genetic engineering, and think about a problem that bothers you the most and think about whether that technology combined with a certain social structure can actually help solve that problem. Are there many young thinkers who regularly do you think, ponder on like deep questions about uh, self-identity, human nature? I think one of the problems is that we've designed a world where we, we don't, as humanity, take those questions very seriously. We don't think about the existential stuff. You know, how often do we sit down as part of mainstream culture to think about questions like, who are we? Where did we come from? What does it mean to be a person? This awareness, where does it, it's not part of mainstream culture. So I don't blame young people for not thinking about those things. One of the theories that we really love in education is called the multiple intelligences theory. It's developed by Howard Gardner. It has, we call it a theory, but it has a lot of amazing evidence from neuroscience to back it up. But what Gardner did is that he took intelligence and showed us that it's actually divided into different modalities and different ways of being smart. So you can be kinesthetic intelligence, which is like bodily movement, linguistic intelligence, using language, pedagogical intelligence, being able to construct ideas and teach someone else. Mm -hmm. And the re he recently added existential intelligence. 
learners who possess existential intelligence intuitively ask questions, the big questions like, what is the nature of humanity? What is truth? Who are we from a cosmic perspective? Where are we headed? Examples of thinkers and that have this kind of intelligence include Socrates, Buddha. These are kind of figures throughout human history that had an existential intelligence. And it's the type of intelligence that's most difficult to automate with machines. And it's the one that we least cater to in schools. Like students who are naturally like that. I was natural. I, I believe I have a lot of existential intelligence. No one tells them that is a form of being smart. You are a genius for seeking out these answers, for having these philosophical discussions and perspectives. So I think we really ought to get more young people involved. We do this at our academy. A lot of our curriculum is built around existential intelligence. In fact, we're launching a series of modules on existential studies and resource guide on existential studies because we think that young people need more guidance on tackling these big questions. Yeah, definitely so. And at the end of the day, I mean, that's what we're here for in a way, to discover, uh, as you say, who we are and uh, where we're heading and, and, and how can we like, express like, the true nature of who we are. So, but what is your take on, on who are we actually from a cosmic perspective? Ooh. <laughs> it's <laughs> a long a, podcast, right? <laughs> yeah, that's, like, that's a big question. I think uh, all the humans, you know, all the great minds have always kind of tried to tackle that question. I mean, what I like to do sometimes when I, this is especially if I'm in a moment of internal or external conflict, is zoom out. Because, you know, we think we're so big, our world is so big, but zoom out. You know, from a big picture cosmic perspective, we are simply, you know, a couple of biological beings that happen to evolve to be conscious operating in this tiny pale blue dot of the planet in a universe that's 93 billion light years across. And when you zoom out and take that perspective, it really shifts the life decisions you make, the passions you choose to you know, spend your time with and the way you interact with other human beings. Now, the way I like to sometimes think about my identity and our collective identity is that in many ways, we are the universe and we are the universe thinking about itself. And that's not just a kind of mystical perspective. It's actually backed by science. So Earth and everything that we see around us was actually made as a byproduct of stars that exploded. So the the elements that make up your blood and your bones came from remnants of exploded stars from millions or billions of years ago. And over an extended period of time, over aeons, those atoms, those elements that came from an exploded stars started to form life, which then started to evolve and eventually get to the point of conscious, self-aware human beings that can actually now get to a place where they can start to understand themselves scientifically. So in the worlds of Carl Sagan, we are the cosmos thinking about itself. And I think that's the most inspiring way I can think about our collective human identity. So in that sense, uh, something that I often repeat to myself and to the people around me is like, we're all one. I come from a neuroscience background and neuroscientists like to point out that our reality is in many ways a hallucination because everything you see goes through your brain. And for instance, why do I see a bed right now or like a table right now? Essentially, what my brain is doing is saying, okay, there's an edge. It's shaped a certain way. It links it to other parts of my brain that say this is a table. In the objective world, without the existence of a brain, 
this could be anything. It could be atoms. It could be energy. It could, you know, it's our brains that turn it into a table conceptually inside our minds. So same thing applies to race. Same thing applies to individual identities. It's kind of all part of our collective imagination. So from a cosmic perspective, we're all manifestations of the same being. We're all part of the same process and part of the same species. And that's another thing we ought to teach in education is give young minds an expanded sense of self rather than just think of themselves as individuals. What about you? Um, what would you say is, uh, and maybe has always been your passion? You know, that thing that you're also willing to suffer for if needed. Yeah, I, I think it's funny when you, if you had asked me this um, a few years ago, I would have probably said my passion is science and it is. I've always been curious and I've always wanted to find answers to things. Uh, you know, from a very young age, and my parents always supported this beautifully. I always would be reading voraciously because I just wanted to understand the world and myself and everything in it. Mm -hmm. But I think what I would say now is that my passion is solving problems. I think it's also, from a deeper perspective, since we're talking about being more meaningful, it's also a coping mechanism. I think when I see large-scale problems that contributes to unnecessary or disproportionate amounts of suffering, instead of letting it kind of heavily sit with me, I'd rather channel that into solving it. And for me, education was that. It was, you know, channeling my frustration as a learner and seeing what all my peers were going through mm -hmm. into actually creating a more inspiring education model for the future. So, you know, there's a beautiful, since we're on that topic, there's a beautiful concept in uh, Japanese philosophy called Ikigai. Mm -hmm. And Ikigai, your purpose or reason for being is taught to be at the intersection of what you love, what you're good at, what the world needs, and what can make you money. So I think that's how I would deconstruct passion for anyone who's trying to find their own passion. What about what you would call transformational points in your life mm -hmm. so far? What are those? Just a few at least. So for me, I think that when I experienced radical, you know, altered states, particularly through uh, meditation, particularly through going to ex having experiences like Africa Burn, which is the regional event of Burning Man, that those were some of the most transformative experiences for me because they took me outside of the default mode of thinking putting me into a completely radical environment outside of traditional norms, outside of traditional kind of society and allow you to openly creatively express yourself. So I think that was one big one. Another thing that was very transformative and I think is so critical is having the right kind of mentors. So when I was, you know, throughout my high school experience, I knew I was smart, but I didn't really consider myself gifted until I actually, you know, was in this position where I had a gifted and talented program where the right mentors were telling me that you're, you're special, you can do this and guiding me to all these incredible resources. And that was a very powerful experience for me. So, that, you know, did you find them or they found you or was it like a, it was actually accidental in the beginning. So, you know, my, it's, it's funny because my co-founder Roland used to be one of my mentors and he was the most incredible one mentor I could potentially ask for and I think he saw in me something I hadn't seen in myself and uh, so there was definitely you know a lot of that imposter syndrome in the beginning because all of a sudden you're being told that you're an extraordinary human being 
But over time, you know, it became evident as I was, you know, introduced through incredible works and got customized feedback and actually got to learn through that mentorship process in a way that was personalized for me. But I think later on in my career, I started, I'm I'm now seeking out those mentors. You know, I went off to university because I had recognized Mm -hmm. the power that that has. I will reach out to other entrepreneurs and innovators that really inspire me Mm -hmm. and seek their mentorship. And just uh, to name a few, who are those? So, for instance, uh, one entrepreneur I really look up to, her name is Robin Farman Farmian. She is an incredible thought leader, investor, entrepreneur, innovator based out of Silicon Valley. I urge you guys to check out his her, her book, The Thought Leader's Formula. It's an excellent resource, but she's also so such a powerful figure for me because she's such a radical contrast to what people, the stereotypes people have about female leaders. She's so strong, so empowering, so badass, and also says it like it is. You know, and for me, that as a young person, it's so helpful to get that kind of honest uh, feedback and empowerment. And she's so motiva- motivating. And, I, and we're also close friends, you know, so it's just wonderful. She's been a great influence in my life, too. And what is the stereotype you're referring to? What is yeah, that? I think that... There is a stereotype that often is subconscious, I would say. I mean, it probably goes to the roots of why there's so much gender disparity. And that often it's the backwards thinking of how women can't be authoritative or they can't be, they can't necessarily be stern or they can't necessarily be strong in their perspective. I do think that the subconscious perception is that women are frail they're less confident potentially, they speak up less, right? There's that kind of subconscious implications that often go into people's judgments. Having the right role models and figures that challenge that makes a huge difference. Is there like a one, you could say, long-term formula or long-term solution that you believe in for business, you know, regardless of sector or? Regardless of sector, I think that the most powerful businesses don't go out to make profits or money they go out to solve problems. And I think that's the core thing. Because if you have a problem that you're going after, there is immediate market demand for a solution, right? You're aligned in that this is something that's definitely needed. And then it's just a question of execution and marketing. I think it's important also for businesses to always remember this because, you know, being in that position yourself, a lot of entrepreneurs start off by saying, I want to make the world a better place and contribute by solving this problem. But throughout that capitalistic process of fundraising, scaling, it's easy to forget why you started your business to begin with. Mm-hmm. It's easy to forget that this is actually not designed, to, you know, my purpose here isn't to optimize to a venture capitalist econo- economics or maximize shareholder profits, but actually to contribute to positive change in society, which looks like different things. Sometimes on the profit and loss statement sheet, it, that doesn't look really good. But from an impact perspective, it looks amazing, right? Mm-hmm. So I think it's so important to remember that so that you also align your incentives and measure success mm-hmm. through an impact lens as opposed to just the monetary lens. If we dream a little bit and say that you can have all doors open to you and um, you have all kinds of resources available, what would you then innovate or change? Yeah, I think about this a lot, (laughs) especially because we're deep into fundraising right now. So it's very easy to fantasize about having billions of dollars to spend. Obviously, I think, you know, I, I am in education for a reason. If all doors were open to us, I think my team and I would go all in into radically overhauling the sector and launching completely innovative 
future-focused uh, schools or learning hubs globally. So we wouldn't just innovate or add a layer of extracurricular opportunities on the existing model, but create an alternative K-12 model and actually execute it globally at scale. And with unlimited funds, it would also be beautiful to be able to implement that in a way where it's not just accessible to those in the developed world, but also developing countries that don't just need basic literacy. They also need to be able to develop their self-actualization and purpose and soft skills as well. So, yeah, if it were up to me, I would provide future-focused, radical education to the whole world. Fantastic. I hope you succeed. But if this would come true and, for example, your future kids go to this, let's say, mm-hmm. through this new education system, yeah. what do they experience? Do you go somewhere physical yeah. with them to school? What is happening? That's a great question. So I think the future of education, contrary to what a lot of people might think, I, we don't believe that it's going to be completely online and digital. We think that it's going to take more of a blended hybrid approach. The school of the future will have these individual learning hubs or centers globally, but you know students would spend a lot of time at home doing independent learning and time in the classroom or school actually working in teams to solve problems and to actually build other experience, get mentorship, get feedback, and so on. So, you know, if, I'm, if we're thinking of radically overhauling education, there's a lot of different aspects of the framework that we need to change. For instance, let's look at the physical location of schools. They're often isolated into different buildings. Even the fanciest schools are often kind of their own little microcosm. What if instead we embedded schools into existing innovation spaces and hubs, such as accelerator spaces or co-working spaces, so that students can actually engage in a real-life professional setting and have their curriculum be supplemented by projects and challenges that the innovation ecosystem around them is working on. Beyond that, let's think about how we would evaluate learning in such a context. Right now, we're using standardized tests and exams. But what if instead we evaluated student learning through their, the solutions that they've come up with, through projects they've worked with, through creative endeavors, through micro-credentials of them acquiring these skills like design thinking, systems thinking, agility, you know? What if that became our primary metric of evaluation and it wasn't standardized, it was actually customized for each and every student? Uh, Now, what would the curriculum look like? So I definitely think there's a need for uh, innovative core curriculum that is competency-based, that doesn't focus on subject knowledge, but ways of thinking and ways of solving problems. Everything Mm -hmm. from persuasive communication all the way to being able to work effectively in a team. But on top of that, there needs what we need is personalized learning pathways. So every student is different and every student has their own strengths, weaknesses, and interests. And they should be on a pathway specifically based on that. So for instance, if you, you know, in this future school, you are, let's say, a student that is interested in Let's go with entrepreneurship as an example. You're interested in entrepreneurship. So what would this curriculum look like? So we decide first on mapping out your existing skills and what you already know and where you're at. And then say, okay, what do we want to accomplish by the end of the semester? Maybe we want to make sure you have a draft of a business plan ready. So what do you need to know in order to get to a place where you can write a strong business plan? You need to have amazing ideation skills. You need to be able to do market research. You need to be able to do financial modeling. Uh, You need to be able to do kind of market analysis all the way to building out an operational plan. And each of these would be a subunit that you would go through and acquire 
through a combination of online learning and interacting with industry experts and mentors. And over time, you build your credentials to get to a point where you can build out a strong business plan. Now, maybe the following semester, you learn, you get into the pitch deck and actually putting a team in place. So it's learning by doing, and it's learning in a way that's relevant to you. So for a student who's entrepreneurial, learning math is much more interesting when you learn it through accounting and financial modeling. You know, like I'm an example of this. I hated math. But now as an entrepreneur, I'm learning it in the context that's relevant to me and exciting to me. So another example would be a student that's interested in sports. Let's say they're athletic, but they're also just captivated by sports. You know, a lot of boys are like this particularly. What if you taught them organizational management through sports management, through learning how to manage a sports club, learning to manage those balance sheets? Or what if they uh, learned human anatomy and biology through the process of actually thinking about the anatomy of athletes and injuries and things like that? That would be much more engaging to them. But again, that might not be relevant to another student. So that's what I mean. Like personalized learning is at the core of the future of education. And we don't do that right now. It's all standardized. It's all set by an external body. And what that's what future of education should be. Fantastic. I would love that to be a reality like tomorrow. So I can get through that instead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're working on it. <laughs> so, but what is the um, challenge here with fundraising in the situation where you are in right now. What is the main, do you think, the biggest argument that they will really find to be the most important one? You know, as any entrepreneur and investor knows, it, the answer will vary from, per, it's so subjective, right? Like you can come up with all these universal rules and laws of how to fundraise effectively, but the reality is every human that makes a financial decision does it with their own terms. However, I think the most common challenge we see is not a challenge of, oh, this is not what the model of education should be. It's not a challenge of your team can't execute it because we have an incredible team in place. It's more of a challenge of this is so radical and is the world ready? Is the world ready and will the world buy into this? And that's where, you know, everything I said previously about changing perspectives and the way people think about education is such an important part of the puzzle. Mm -hmm. So that's the number one challenge we see because a lot of funds and investors are actually not the biggest risk takers. They like to invest into proven models. I see, we see a lot of investment in entrepreneurship on incremental changes as opposed to radical overhauls. So the challenge is identifying funds or investors that actually say we want to invest in radical leaps and bounds in human progress and not just an incremental change. And we want to take huge risk doing that because we'd rather live in a world where we fail doing moonshot ideas than succeed by improving the world by 10%. And that's just a question of identifying people, other potential partners who think in that way. What about other generations? Let's say my generation, for instance. So how do we benefit from this solution that you are going to design? What our vision is that this serves uh, not just as an idea, but actually as a prototype and as an example that all other aspects of education can then look to. Because right now there's a lot of theory. Every talk you hear about the future of work and the future of education, every thought leader, they're all saying the same thing. They're all saying we need to have competency-based education, personalized learning, project-based, and so on. But no one's doing it. And no one wants to be the first person that does it. Like no, one's, no one wants to be the first person that takes the risk funding that, right? Or very few people rather do. 
But if someone does do it, it becomes like that example that then the university model or their lifelong learning or the corporate or training model can then kind of cite back to and say, what can we take from that model and implement it, right? Just be that kind of visionary example. But also coming, zooming out a little further, a core of our vision and mission is not just about teaching kids skills, but values as well. Values like curiosity, awe, wonder, compassion, empathy, self-transcendence. I think it's fair to say that we all want to live in a world where we operate on these values. You know, that's why as a society, we ought to invest in that kind of education. And uh, the way I see values is also that it's really a mirror image of your awareness of things. So now I have certain values in five years. I will have experienced loads of things that then change my value or my values. So if we look at the, as you say, the planet from a bigger perspective, what do you think would be the best value for the planet to have, you know? That's a great question. For the entire planet, I, I think that having a cosmic perspective is actually key. I mean, Carl Sagan, who again is another incredible existential person, has said, if a human being disagrees with you, let him be. Because in a million light years across, you won't find another one. We're so, you know, if you take that cosmic perspective, you have to ask whether the kind, the ways in which we harm the planet and life on it would happen if we all had that perspective of recognizing how cherished and rare and precious it is. You know, you have to ask yourself if we would still hurt each other or just disagree so passionately to the points of violence if we had that perspective. Because contrary to popular belief, the universe as we know it isn't teeming with life. It's actually extremely hostile. The physicist and philosopher David Deutsch likes to have, he has this thought experiment where he divides the planet into the universe at large into cubes. And he says, what does a typical cube look like from what we know in physics and astronomy? A typical cube would be so cold, so cold that negative 273 degrees below Kelvin, Kelvin, it would be so dark that if the closest star exploded into a supernova, you wouldn't see it for tens of thousands of light years away. It would be so cold, so dark, and so empty, emptier than any of the vacuums that we can create on Earth. So a typical cube in the universe is cold, dark, and empty. And yet, despite all of that, we exist. And we're in this planet rich in biodiversity and resources and have this intellect and consciousness that is so above every other life form that has ever lived on this planet. And when you take that kind of a cosmic perspective and recognize how precious we are as individuals and as a species, I think that just serves as a complete transformation in um, how human beings act and the decisions we make. Let's talk about leaders. Um, and also, how do you define a leader, actually? And mainly, who are they? How do you define them? And number two, if there was like one piece of advice you could give them, what would it be? For me, a leader is someone who inspires through words and through actions and who is also able to work effectively um, to motivate a team towards a certain goal. In that context, a leader isn't necessarily the source of authority or isn't necessarily the person that manages everything and says what needs to be done but rather inspires action through a place of inspiration rather than blind authority. In terms of what, what advice I would give to leaders, well, I think it's so important to not forget about the human impact of teams that you work with. I think I, I often see 
you know, a lot of visionary entrepreneurs um, and companies. And then you hear about the behind the scenes of how the pressure that they lead with or the fear that they lead with in their teams and how so much of their teams actually don't have a good work-life balance. And these are incredible companies often making the world a better place through their products. But behind the scenes from an organizational perspective, there's a lot of suffering. The employees are working like hours a day and um, they're, they're afraid of their bosses and there's high consequence situations. And I think that it's important that we expand their definition of impact and say it's not just the consumer-facing impact, it's also the kind of team-facing impact. So what I think I've realized as a team that it's so important to look out for one another, to care for one another, to have meaningful experiences with one another. And it's, I think, really important for me that my team is happy. When I think about everyone from our interns to my co-founder, to making sure they're excited by what they're doing, that they're not doing tasks that bore them, that they're motivated, that if they're having personal issues, that they can count on me to be understanding and to be there for them. Because if that's in place, I think mm-hmm. the team together collectively can do extraordinary things. And I don't think there's any point in making the world a better place if you as a leader and your team are giving a mental health cost or giving the cost of your well-being for it. And if you were to give advice to yourself, let's say five years ago, what would it be? I would probably not follow the route of formal education to begin with. It's funny and ironic to say that because obviously going through that experience, I don't regret anything, but going through that experience made me realize I want to focus on education. But definitely when I was younger, there was that pressure because I was like a straight A valedictorian student. So this is coming from someone who actually bought into the system and did really well in the system. And it was such an intense part of my future thinking about, okay, I need to get these grades. I need to get into these amazing universities. I need to graduate with these degrees and do this. That dictated a lot of the decisions I took. That dictated a lot of the financial investments I made. And if I would go back or if I you know, spoke to my younger self, I would say, you know, I would challenge that. Say, but why? Why is it so important for you to make this financial investment to go abroad to this kind of formal institution? What are you actually going to gain from that? And is it really the fact that everyone's buying into this? Is that really the best way forward for you? And that it's okay to do a complete alternative path and that you can succeed doing an alternative path, even though it is riskier, Mm -hmm. no doubt. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the number one thing I would tell myself. Beyond that, I think I would also, and this is something I've realized as well, like, like you through having certain experiences, is that it's not just about developing your skills or knowledge, but also developing your um consciousness and your internal states i would challenge my younger self to take things like mental health much and well-being much more seriously than i did uh, when i was a teenager that take things like purpose and mindfulness and being present and being able to enjoy the simple things in life mm-hmm. i think that's something that often you realize so late that certain wirings in your brain become difficult to attach and I think it's so important that we teach young minds these things from a very early age how would you define your purpose I would say you know from a very deeper existential lens that my purpose is or a purpose really at academy actually is to create cosmic citizens to actually embed that perspective those competencies those views into humanity that align with being a species that has a cosmic perspective The way I do this at a kind of global level is through education. 
I believe very much in um, companies as a corpus, as bodies, so to say, as systems in that sense, and their ability to really be used as instruments for change. If we could transform these companies into these engines to create this like humanity plus agenda that they should drive and be the only reason why they should exist, I believe that's possible and that we're going there because our focus is really that we are turning to companies to plead for their leadership in order to drive the issues and the questions we want. Do you believe in that or do you think that's uh, too optimistic? No, I agree with you. I mean... We're definitely increasing our awareness as individuals and as societies. And I think a technology has a huge positive role to play in that because now it's increasingly becoming difficult for the corrupt, greedy individuals and corporations to get away with things. You know, and that's one of the positives of social media actually now. The activism is much more powerful today than it was a few hundred years ago. I'm actually a co-founder of a movement called Intelligent Optimism. And uh, the whole goal of intelligent optimism is to get people excited about the future in a way that's aligned with the data and the statistics. And the reality is that the world has been getting better by all metrics. Mm-hmm. We're living longer, healthier, and wealthier lives than any other point in human history. Mm-hmm. In the last 100 years, we've seen a 99% decrease in infant mortality, 99% increase in life expectancy. We are living in the era known as the long peace which is the longest period that the great powers have gone without going into war. And despite there being still, you know, war in the world, we're actually living through the most peaceful time where death per capita through violence and war is at its lowest that it's ever been. Now, when I say all of that, I'm not dismissing the fact that we obviously have so many challenges ahead. Think about climate change or you know, climate urgency and refugee crisis. There's a lot of issues. But what we're seeing is we have been, always had these existential threats and we've always somehow tackled them and we've and that's it's belief in that in human progress and the metrics behind it Mm. that can ensure that we solve the problems that are ahead Mm. of us because as steven pinker points out these problems are not doomsday scenarios they're just problems to be solved Mm. and solving them in return will create more problems and then we have to solve those problems and that's what human progress is where is your team based and where is where are you based actually yeah, so we're a very global team. I, I go back and forth right now between Vancouver and Dubai. We have team members in Dubai, Boston, and India, and Russia. So we are a very global team. And we are literally aligned with the future workforce in that we are a digital office. You know, we operate digitally. It's, uh, How did you like, find yeah. each other? Lots of different ways. It varies from individual to individual. So Rowan and I, like I said, he used to be my mentor, one of the strongest influences in my life. And then we collaborated on mm-hmm. many initiatives, including Cyphus Dubai, Intelligent Optimism, and now All Academy. Keith, our incredible chief technology officer, mm-hmm. we got introduced to him through one of our advisors. You know, so different different ways. Um, but yeah, no, it's mm-hmm. incredible. I think I found that one of the best ways to find the right team is to be very explicit about your values and the way that you look at the world, not just from a kind of company perspective and what you do, but the philosophy behind it. Because then you align and attract individuals who have the same kind of philosophical views and existential awareness that you do. And uh, you just end up working beautifully together despite having different skill sets because you're all in the same reality tunnel. And and what would you say is um, Academy's 
values if you would you know invite somebody on board yeah yeah so we you know there have a couple of core values um one of them is intelligent optimism as i described another one is scientific literacy actually being able to think logically and rationally through things uh, compassion kindness and empathy is such a core value of ours you know how we treat one another taking a cosmic perspective and zooming out is another another power value and also being able to kind of look at things from an existential perspective mm-hmm. We are all also um, moonshot thinkers in that we think not in incremental improvements, but in 10x radical overhauls. So what do you think is the most important thing for companies to focus on right now if we just choose one like common denominator? I really think it goes back to, again, just solving problems. I think every company needs to think, and they all do it in different ways, think to themselves, what is, it can be a local or global issue that really bothers us as a team or we're invested in as a team or as an organization. And at the same time, what are the resources that we have that can be used to tackle this challenge? Imagine if everyone did that. Imagine, obviously, it's going to be specific, different things for different people. Like some organizations might find that they're in a great position to solve the water crisis and South Africa, for instance, and they use all the resources to do that. And others might find that they're in a great position to provide uh, basic literacy to underdeveloped regions. And it's going to be different from the perspective. But I really think if we all just boiled it down to how can we as an organization contribute to positive civilization level change? And that, I believe, is the most important thing. That's what all the metrics, all the aspects of the business plan, everything should come back to that. Beautiful. I work for that too, so <laughs> like, yeah, Awesome. <laughs> yeah. And just as a final question to you, um, like a big, big one, but you're used to this huge perspective. So sure. uh, what do you think the world needs most at this very time? We all just need to be more present, I think. It's just, it's based out of thousands of years of Eastern philosophies. But in fact, and this answer is probably influenced by the fact that I just finished reading A New Earth by Eckhart Tolle. And he boils down all the global, local, individual issues to our egos. And the fact that most of us are stuck in our heads, we're thinking all the time, we're not present with our thoughts, individuals, the beauty around us. And we are completely trapped in you know, this kind of egoistic view, an illusion of who we think we are. Mm-hmm. And I really think if all the world leaders, all the politicians, all the corporate big CEOs just took the time to be more present and aware mm-hmm. of everything, including their motivations and the way they treat people, uh, all the way to uh, existential issues. Just being there, uh, I think we would see actually a huge emergent change as a byproduct of that very simple change of mindset. Yeah, I'm sure. And just bringing 100% of yourself to whatever work you have, right? And being able to be accepted exactly for that, uh, which is really bringing the best of you. Absolutely. It's actually one of the most challenging things as an entrepreneur because you're constantly planning for the future. You're constantly forecasting and thinking, how do I need to accomplish this and that? And I think it's one of the hardest things to do as an entrepreneur is to just enjoy the present moment, whether it's you, the work that you're working on right now at this moment or whether it's just you know sitting by the beach, whatever it is. And I think you just have to learn to love that moment for what it is despite the outcome. Otherwise, you're just always going to be in the future or in the past. So, right, it was beautiful to talk to you and um, so 
interesting and so intriguing and um, I would have one million other questions but you know time is out and I, um, I just wanted to ask you how, how do you feel how was it to be on the podcast it was amazing I mean one of the things I always say is we teach students how to answer questions but not how to ask them mm. and I love the questions you ask I think it's the perfect recipe for a meaningful profound also even should I say transcendent discussion mm. so I, I feel wonderful I, I wish I had more opportunities for conversations like this not just in public forums mm. but also in mm. my daily life so thank you for that you did a wonderful job with the questions thank you thanks so much Thank you, Raya, and uh, thanks for sharing everything, really. For people who want to find out more, so where should they head? Yeah, so you can check out the Academy website. That's A-W-E-C-A-D-E-M-Y.org. Or you can also even check uh, out my website. That's rayabitshahri.com. And again, we're also on social media. If you want to stay up to date on our upcoming resources and guides, mm -hmm. you can just go on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, Academy. Fantastic. Okay. And I'll put the links in show, show notes on corporateunplug.com and they will see all the links. Thank you. Great. Remember to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Acast and share this episode with people you know would benefit from hearing exactly this. Please rate, review this podcast if you enjoy it. And uh, thank you so much for listening. And until next time, live with purpose and remember to unpack. Ciao. Ciao, Raya. Thank you for having me. Ciao.